Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Yo, hey everybody, how are we today? If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor. I hang out over here after the service. Come say hi. Today I might leave a little early because I'm flying to El Paso because I want to believe Dallas is beautiful. And that's the only place you can go. Um, if you are new to CBC, welcome. Uh, every Sunday we get together, we open some scriptures, we worship God. And before we dive into the text, we like to remind ourselves of our posture before God. We live in a critical culture because we're both prideful and insecure. At one point, you guys are just going to say the phrasing I say at the beginning of sermons. There's a line that we like that the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. What that means is we fight the cultural implication. We fight the pressures to be overly critical for criticalness sake. And we first ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit doing in my life this morning? How is God trying to change me to look more like Jesus? Because the movement of God is about individuals being changed. As that transformation grows, it changes societies. And so Jesus this morning is changing our hearts towards his heart. As one theologian said, that the scripture is given for more than just your information, but your transformation. And so we stop down at the beginning and we simply say a prayer and ask that our posture might be right to hear from God this morning. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. Lots of other stuff we could be doing, but we choose to be here to worship a God who's worthy of our worship, who deserves our worship, who is bigger and better than um, all of our baggage. And in the middle of this moment, we trust that the Holy Spirit's changing us. So Holy Spirit, do your work this morning. Convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement, give us clarity where we don't have any, and hopefully help us to see the goodness of God more clearly today than we did as we leave than when we walked in. Holy Spirit, change us. May that be our purpose and our prayer. If you're comfortable, just say a quick prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your spirit this morning and ask that you might see it. Let's see, pray for me that God might use the study and the presentation uh, for his good and for his glory and all the highs and lows of it that the Holy Spirit might go before us now and teach us through his text. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Hey, do me a favor. Think right now. Just think of your family. Got a picture in your mind? Mine comes from the Christmas card we sent out this last year. I walked into daycare for my two-year-old son on uh, Wednesday this week, and I looked up, and they had this wall of, this is our family, there's a tree with all the pictures of people. And it did one thing in one quick moment. It removed any kind of uniqueness I thought my family had. Because it was just a bunch of families that looked just like mine, that were just as adorable as mine. And look, I'm not saying I tried to rank the cuteness of the families, but my family was probably not at the top, and it bothered me, Okay. Think of your family, what do you think about it? I think it's really interesting to think through how our family has impacted us, how it impacts how we see ourselves and see the world, because Jesus today is talking about family. He's redefining family towards something hopefully better. 
I think more than you know, your family has changed you. I was doing some premarital counseling recently, and I remembered a moment where I am sitting in this group of guys. This is 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. I was not married, and there's this one guy that I lived with, and he was a a psychology uh, student at UNT getting his doctorate. He's a Jesus follower, and so he had intentional conversations every Thursday. And he starts bringing up his family. He starts talking about how his family is very PDA forward. And I think I said something like, ew, gross. And if you know anything about me, I do not like the PDA. I high five my wife. You know, I just am not that way. And uh, he looked at me and said, hey, Charlie, did your parents ever like kiss or do things in front of you? And I said, absolutely not. That is vile. And he, he looked at me and he said, huh, I wonder how that changed you. And I said, you stop with that voodoo right now. I'm out, you know? <laughs> I don't want to go down that road of reflection. Um, It's amazing how family changes. It's amazing how as we define families in different ages and stages of our life, that it impacts how we see the world around us. A couple of quotes that I love, having two kids that are very young and very destructive. I like what Ray Romano says about family. He says, having children is like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps, everything's broken, and there's a lot of throwing up. Yes, yes, there is. I have another kid coming in a couple weeks, and so then I'll move from two to three. And I like what Jim Gavigan says. He says, you know, he's got a lot of kids. He says, you know what it's like having five kids? Imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby, right? (laughs) I feel like that's what's happening right now in my life. Like, we're barely keeping our head above the water. We're yelling help, and somebody's going to give us a child in about four weeks, you know? It's amazing how how you see family shapes the world around you. Uh, A couple more that I found good is from grandparents. A couple quotes uh, says, a baby boy has a way of making a man out of his father and a little boy out of his grandfather. And that was very cute. One writer said, the best babysitters, of course, are the baby's grandparents. You feel completely comfortable entrusting your baby to them for long periods, which is why most grandparents flee to Florida. (laughs) It's good, man. Your family shapes how you interact with the world around you. One writer said, I got this on the screen, in my family, craziest relative, all of them, (laughs) you know? Or a quote that I love that I've used before from George Burns, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city, you know? (laughs) I think family fundamentally changes how we interact with the world around us in ways that sometimes we can't even put into words. So we're in the middle of Matthew 12. And what Jesus has done is he's talked about the divisiveness of his kingdom because he's been confronted with it from other people. When when they say, I don't like you, I don't know who you are, you work outside of my expectations or my preferences, and he heals people they wouldn't heal, and he does things they wouldn't do, and, and they question his validity and his character and his qualities, and they say, are you really from God? And he says, you don't want me to be, so it doesn't matter what I tell you, you're not gonna see anything of God here, and he challenges them. And at the end, what we get is not just a redefinition of Messiah, which is whole chapter, we get a redefinition of the very family unit that helps us define and interpret life in the first place. He comes along to his very family and says they're not exempt from the expectations they have on him that might or might not be right. This is where it starts in verse 41, or 46, excuse me. While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers came and stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. A couple things here just real quick. 
One thing I love about this church is that we have a very diverse faith background mix at CBC because we're a Bible church that doesn't belong to denominations. And so we have a bunch of Baptists. This is the South after all, everybody. Uh, I'm a Methodist growing up. We have a lot of Catholics. I mean, we have some Lutherans. We have some, we just have a bunch of people in the mix. And so the first thing we have to establish is, and I won't go into some scriptures. There's quite a few of them, but Jesus had physical brothers and sisters, some uh, parts of our faith tradition, we get to the Catholic side of things, don't believe that. Joseph was not the most patient man in the world. He was married to Mary, and things happened. And so there's at least four or five references in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, and one or two in Acts, and after that, where it references specifically his physical brothers and sisters. So what's happening, if you set the stage, is Jesus has moved from a public place to a private place. He's moved into a home in verse 46 and 47, and his family is outside waiting for him. And that's important. When Matthew writes, when all the writers write, they write with a purpose in mind. Jesus knew why he was telling, or Matthew knew why he was telling this story. We have a teaching team and I will review their sermons. I don't let them review mine for obvious reasons. (laughs) But I, I, I sit through and I say, hey, how can we, what was really, really good here? What was maybe one or two things that we can make a little better? And one of the things I say sometimes is, hey, when you tell a story, know why you're telling the story have a point in mind that changes not the the facts of the story, but it might change some things you emphasize in the story. So it's interesting here how Matthew points out that they move from outside to inside, from public space to private space. And someone says in verse 47, your mother and brothers, where are they? They're standing outside wanting to speak to you. And it's important to note his family's disposition to Jesus at this point. The same story is told in Mark chapter 3, verse 30, 31. And what's interesting is up until the post-resurrection time, we have no evidence that Jesus' family bought into his claims. We don't. We have no evidence that his families were disciples. This actually phrasing in this context actually points us in the other direction. Because if you look at the narrative in a whole, if you look at, you know, when the first was written to him, they didn't have chapters and verses. They read it all at once. And chapter 12 is about the people that disagreed with Jesus' claims and they confronted him. And you have some Pharisees that didn't believe in healing he did. You have some Pharisees that didn't believe his claims in Messiahship. You have some Pharisees that thought that he's working for Satan. And now you have his family that's standing outside, not inside, that's separate, not close. What Matthew seems to be doing, what Mark does in chapter three, is he loops Jesus' family into the same bucket and category as those who doubted or even disbelieved in the claims of Christ. And you know what? I don't blame him. If I'm Jesus's brother, it's hard for me to believe he's a Messiah when I grew up with him. I have a twin brother. If my brother said, hey, Charlie, God's going to use me in great ways, I'd say, okay, I saw you play basketball, you know? Sometimes it's really difficult to believe that Jesus was who he said he was because they knew him from when he was a baby onward. I get it. That's much, much harder to see clearly through the lens of our baggage that we carry into the present. And so the beauty is that Mary started believing and James does in Acts 1.14. We see it. There's, there's indications that his family believed his claims of Messiahship. It took them a little longer and I don't blame them. It probably would me too had I grown up with Jesus. And so what you have to know is that in this text, what Matthew's doing is probably saying his family's not quite there yet when it comes to belief and what they want is special treatment from Jesus. He's sitting inside teaching And people that don't believe in the claims of Christ as presented in the Gospels usually interrupt his teaching and ask for something special. 
And so instead of listen and give respect, they stand outside and they say, stop what you're doing and come attend to us. In that world, we're going to get into it in just a second, family was much weightier than family is for us. At this point, most scholars would say that Joseph had probably passed away. So Jesus had an obligation and a duty to his mother and brothers to attend to their needs. And so they stand outside and they say, stop what you're doing and come attend to us. And what Jesus is going to do is reset their expectations of him by resetting how they see themselves because family is a vehicle through which we see ourselves. And what I think is difficult and a question that I have as I read this text is Jesus' family's familiarity with him stopped them from seeing who he really was. I wonder, I wonder if, if our familiarity with Jesus stops us from seeing his majesty from time to time. I was listening to Andy Stanley a couple weeks ago. He's a pastor in Atlanta at a small, small church plant. And he, um, he said being a pastor is like Groundhog Day. You have to love it because there's seasonality to it. Christmas comes every single year. Easter comes every single year. New fall launches. It's just, it's a cyclical nature of things. And this is going to be my 39th Easter, everybody. And the message hasn't changed, but sometimes because you teach it so many times that you forget how beautiful God really is. Our familiarity sometimes dulls us to the goodness of God. We are redoing a bathroom in our house. And so my wife this week was sending me pictures of tubs yeah, my marriage is still hot, everybody. And <laughs> 10 years in. And so she's sending me pictures of tubs. And have you guys ever done that when somebody sends you a picture? I got an iPhone because uh, I'm millennial. And instead of swiping right to see the next picture, it's actually swiped left. And it resets to the very first picture you guys ever shared together. You ever done that? It's beautiful. So I swiped left, and it was like a picture from 13 years ago. And I thought, oh my goodness, who is that young kid, you know? And then I kept swiping, and... Because I live with my wife every day and like I've seen her brush her teeth, sometimes I forget just how amazing she is and how much I'm lucky to have her say yes to me each and every day. And so I'm looking at these pictures of what we were like before kids and I'm like, oh, look at those rested individuals, you know? <laughs> my, fi- my familiarity sometimes with like a Tuesday picking out tubs with my family causes me to forget how just lucky I am to have my family. So his family's outside, not seeing the beauty and the goodness and the difference and the majesty of God, because all they see is their kid brother or their son or the guy they knew that went on a family trip at age six and got sick, maybe, you know? And so the question, one of the questions we have is, as we talk about family, is how is our familiarity with Jesus causing us not to see his full goodness or resplendence? And so they stand outside, and they want Jesus to stop. And in that moment, Jesus sees it as a time of teaching, Because they have all these assumptions on who he is and who they are based on who he is and the family dynamic. And he sees this moment as a way to reset their idea of what family is, predominantly not around lines of genealogy, but around lines of kind of what he's about and what he's about to do. What he's going to do is change the way that they see themselves in him in this moment. And so in the next verse, he says this in verse 48. The one who has said this, Jesus replied, who is my brother? my mother, and who are my brothers? That sentence would have been extremely offensive in the first century. In the first century, family was two things. It was exclusive and exhaustive. 
Exclusive meaning that family was a means of provision and protection for you and everybody that you cared for. You could not just join a family. You had to marry into a family. And when you married into a family, I did not get to choose that because love everybody. My family chose that for the best good of them and theirs. It's extremely exclusive. It was illegal to marry outside of the family. This is not, this is Romeo and Juliet, not match.com. It literally was an exclusive group that you were born into that you couldn't get out of for your good and they're good for your protection and your provision. It's something that literally defined every facet of your life. Your family informed who you were in the past, who you are right now, and gave you hope for the future. Without that, you had none. That's why when the church talks about family, there's a really good book by a guy named Joseph Hellerman called When the Church Was a Family. When, when he talks about it, it's much deeper and richer than just we belong to a group of people that sing some songs together every Sunday. It's a connection that tears, that, that, that bonds us together at our innermost parts of our being, that defines who we have been, why we're here and what we're doing right now, and it gives us hope for the future. So family in the first century was everything you had and everything you hoped for. It was way bigger than you. And in our culture and context, it's difficult to see things that are bigger than the individual because that is the thing we value the most in the West, for good and for bad. And so in Jesus's culture to ask the question, who are my mother and who are my brothers? That's a huge slap in the face to his mother and his brothers. It was extremely, extremely exclusive, but also exhaustive because it absolutely encapsulated all of his life. It was through the lens of family that they interpreted their past, their lives in the present and their hope for the future. And it's through this lens that this family's coming to Jesus saying, hey, come talk to me for a little bit because I can't see outside of that. And what Jesus does is redefine what they see when they look at family. But I think he makes it better. Now, to deal with that, I want to take a little bit of a side note. Jesus in Matthew specifically is in the other Gospels too. He has some harsh words for family. So what I want to do right now is spend a couple minutes and just talk about God's value for family so we don't get this out of context because it's a terrible thing. So you don't look at your family when you drive home and be like, I owe nothing to you people. You've done nothing for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. You know, we can't. <laughs> do that. If your family breaks out in song in the car, send a video to me so I can judge you. Um, no, no, I, I, think, I think it's really important to know here. So Jesus says a couple things. I'll throw them on the screen because we've taught through them. Uh, Matthew 8, follower of his disciples said, uh, Lord, let me go bury my father. Uh, and he says, hey, follow me um, and let the dead bury their dead. That sounds like Jesus hates fathers, biological fathers in Matthew 10. I've come to set man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies um, will be the members of his household. It, it seems like Jesus hates family. And in those contexts, what he's saying is, it's not an order of, of do you love these things? It's an order of how much do you love and what's the basis for your love and what do you love the most? He's resetting priorities, not around family order, but around God's order of new family found in Jesus. It's really important to understand that when he talks about family, he has some harsh words for family, but it's in a culture that worships family over worshiping God. And so what he's trying to do is reset the order of their worship around something that's better, bigger, longer lasting, leads to deeper love and is more inclusive. So he has some harsh words for family, but also this is the scriptures. The scriptures seemingly, sometimes they, they can contradict each other, but if you look at them more deeply and do more due diligence, they tell a bigger, richer, fuller picture about nuance in life, because life is nuanced. We live in a world that likes to boil everything down to a 10-word greeting card, and it can't be done most of the time. So there are times and places when my family stops me from my flourishing in Christ, and there are times and places when I'm supposed to drop everything and fight for my family. That is what the Bible says in, in 
um, in uh, a couple different places. In, in Mark chapter 7, I'm not going to put it on the screen. In Mark chapter 7, we're reminded how much God values family because some Pharisees went to Jesus and said, hey, I, I don't have to give money to my parents. I'm just going to give it to God instead of giving it to my parents. There's a word there in the Greek that means a special gift to God. And Jesus says, no, you can't give money to God and say, well, I could have taken care of my parents, but I gave it to God instead. I'm off the hook. He said, you're not off the hook for that. Your family that God has given you matters in Timothy. Um, in, in 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially his immediate family, he's denied the faith and worse, he's worse than an unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians, there's a passage on what to do if your family is all Christians, who to marry, who not to marry. And Paul writes, and he says this, I love it. He says, hey, if you're an unbeliever and you find yourself married to a believer, because in, in, in the first century world, as a church grew, a lot of women came to faith because it fought for people that didn't have a lot of rights and people that had a lot of power didn't want to give it up and be like, yeah, we're all equal. Men were like, no, we're not. So uh, a lot of women came to faith. And Paul writes and says, hey, if you're, if you're a wife or if you're a spouse and you come to faith and your spouse doesn't, do you know what he says? He says, honor your relationship because maybe God will sanctify you both in this moment. He says, stay married if you can because you can see what God will do. God very much values family because he created family. It's his primary means through which to change our world and pass on the legacy of faith. So we can't read this passage and say God doesn't love family. We can read this passage and say God's going to broaden our understanding of not just family, but identity. Because in the first century world, your identity was intrinsically wrapped up in who your family was. So Jesus' definition of family is all about how you see yourself and how you see others. It has very little to do in this passage with who should we care for. Because he very much talks in other places about having to care for people that God put in your life. This is not an excuse not to love. We're going to see the opposite. This is actually a call to love more people than you thought you should have in the first place. So, so family, deep down, Jesus says, it's all about your identity. Family impacts how you view you. It impacts how you identify yourself. Because that's what it did in the first century world. And here's what's really important. I think it's what this passage gets to. And I think one of the, the biggest and most important conversations we can have right now in current cultural context is the conversation, the battleground of our faith and all other faiths is on identity. Identity politics and identity sexuality and identity careers and identity fill in the blanks here. Even identities within the Christian subculture itself, people are always trying to brand you as this, as that, as something else. And when they have your identity, then they limit who you actually are and who you're becoming. And this is what God does. He says your identity is found in the person and work of Jesus. Full stop. Full stop. And in our culture that is fighting to identify you as something, as who you voted for or who you love or what school you go to or who you married or what job you have or what neighborhood you live in or whether you're the president of the PTA or just some other person on the PTA in a world that tries to brand you with an identity, it's our job as followers of Jesus to remind ourselves right here, right now, that our identity is found only in who Jesus is. And that is how we see ourselves. There's nothing else. It's, I think, the, one of the most important conversations we can have, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's reminding his own family that he decided to step into, by the way. Nobody forced his hand. He's God. It doesn't work like that. He's telling them, no, no, you have to see yourself through a different lens when it comes to me and you, not just the fact that we grew up together, but that I'm God. There's a story to illustrate this in John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, it's the wedding of Cana. So it's the first miracle Jesus does. This is the coming out party for Jesus' ministry. He hasn't really done a lot of you know, miraculous stuff yet. 
He hasn't started the messianic journey yet. He hasn't recruited disciples yet. He's just kind of a dude that's a carpenter that's 30. And Mary knew something was a little different. And so if you know the story, they run out of wine. And, and Mary says, hey, go and talk to my son. And Jesus says this in, um, in verse 3, I think it is. He says, um, they have no more wine. In verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. He looks at his mom and he says, woman, why do you involve me? He wasn't being mean. What he's doing in that moment as his ministry starting is he's reminding Mary that their relationship is going to change because family now is defined along the lines of who Jesus was, not who you were born to. I love what Augustine says about this text. He says, Mary has to learn that her relationship to Jesus as a disciple was more important than her relationship to him as a mother. He's reorienting her, identi- her, her view of family because he's reorienting her identity. Not as his mom, not as Joseph's wife, not as mother of the brothers and sisters of Jesus. But he's even saying, look, you were used by God greatly, but your new identity is solely found in who you are as my disciple. And so he says, woman, for the first time. It's a change necessarily in what she thought was her identity to our shared identity in Christ. It's going to be our, our marching orders going forward. And so in verse 49, back in our text in Matthew 12, he says, in pointing towards that, point, in pointing towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. So when we talk about what family does, man, it, it absolutely is about your identity. It's how you see you and it's how you see those around you. And Jesus is reinterpreting both those things. He's saying, see yourself differently because your family is different and see others differently because your family is different. That text there when it says in pointing to his disciples and pointing towards is five words in the Greek. And it doesn't just mean like, hey, see those guys over there? It literally means he stretched his hand out over the top of the heads of people that were very near. Matthew's telling a story. And he depicts Jesus's biological family as outside far away and those who really love Jesus inside right next to and he's calling his family to be one of those people inside right next to you, to be a disciple and that might identify them. One author said, Doug Moo said, those who belong to Christ constitute a new humanity within which the distinctions of the world, while not obliterated, are revitalized. It gives new meaning to the idea of family. It changes how you see you and it changes how you see those around you. And then he doubles down on this just in case they didn't get it in verse 50. He says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's a crazy statement. That would be incredibly offensive if you're marrying the brothers. When it says, do the will of my Father there, it, it always means this. We, we have reduced the will of God to something like magical and mysterious, you know? I'm gonna pray that I might find the will of God. The will of God has already been found for most of us in the scriptures. In Thessalonians, it talks about this in 4 and 5 in 1 Thessalonians. It says, you know what the will of the Father is? Your sanctification. You know what sanctification is? Your progression towards looking like Jesus. You know what that looks like? You allowing Jesus to shape and mold you into something that you are not, but what you're becoming because of who he is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when he says that these are my new family members, those who does the will of my Father, what he means are the people that I call my family are the people that are being changed and shaped by my teachings, by my rhythms, by my ways. We would call them Christians. He doesn't divorce action from attitude here. He says, if you follow Jesus, it's going to look like you follow Jesus in your life. And that might be really slow, you know? And that might be faster than others in different seasons. You have good days and bad days. But he's saying that those people who follow after my ways and it changes who they are, are changed 
because they have a new identity in me. Because family fundamentally changes you. It does. And Jesus is saying that which changes you is how you see yourself through the lens of me and how you see others. Because that word whoever there, remember family was exclusive and exhaustive. So Jesus says, it's not just that you're my family. He says, whoever does the will of my father. That's a radical concept. Radical concept in the first century. There was no whoever. Most of the fights in the first hundred years of the church were about the Jews fighting everybody else because it was about whoever and they didn't believe it. Whether you're in Romans or whether you're in Acts and there's some bread distribution issues, they're saying, we are privileged, you are not. We're God's people, you are not. And Paul comes in and Peter comes in and a couple other people come in and say, actually, I think the lines of, 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 of the limitations around the family of God has changed and it's no longer just a Jew thing. It's, just, it's something for all of us. He says, whoever. I remember uh, when I was, went to Bible college, because <laughs> we think that we're better than this, we're, we're bigger than this, we understand that God's call is for everybody, but there are small ways that we really don't believe it, you know? Based on what you dress like, what you look like, how you worship. Uh, I remember I went to Bible college and I was there for about a week and I wasn't a very big youth group all-star growing up. Shocking, I didn't do the church thing a whole lot, didn't go to Wednesday nights. There's this girl in my school, I went to a private school, and, and she every single Wednesday would say, hey, Charlie, you coming to youth group? And for four years, I said, absolutely see you there. And I never showed up once. I was a terrible person, and she was a saint. Um, and, uh, and I was at Bible college, and I grew up Methodist, and I loved it. It was what I knew. I met God there. And I met this really conservative Bible college, and this person asked, hey, what, did you grow up? And I said, Methodist. And she said, oh, so you're not saved yet. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> What are you? And she said, I'm like, I don't even know what that is, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I do. I think it, we need a fundamental reminder that God is good for everybody, not just the people like you, because we default to that. <laughs> we default to limiting the love of God towards those who look like us, towards those who we want to identify with, not people who God says can identify with us because of Jesus. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 3, 28, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythians, slaves or free, but Christ in all is all and is in all. And all those different, without breaking them down, all those different definitions there, people groups, are, are different ways it was divided in the first century. Have and have nots, right culture, wrong culture, right side of the road, wrong side of the road. Barbarians and, and Scythians were, were seen as like the worst of the worst murderers. And Paul says, hey, all these people, Christ is for. Shockingly revelatory thing in the first century. And so what, he's, what Jesus is reminding his followers of in this moment, what he's redefining in this moment is family because it changes how you see you and it changes how you see those around you. It's an identity play. And he's telling his family for the first time, your identity is not what you think it is. It's not around the fact that I'm your son or brother. Or, or, it's mostly, it's, it's becoming around what Christ has done. The family of God does not care about genealogy, but Christology. And that changes how we see us. And that changes how we see those around us. Why are we saying all sufficient merit today? Because you bring nothing to the family of God. God brought you in. It's important to remind ourselves of that in a culture that tries to identify you as different things and then tell you you're better than these groups or worse than these groups. We come to the foot of the cross and we realize that the family of God needs the same amount of Jesus, all of us. So, this text, what it does, it helps us identify ourselves around what's true in a world that tries to identify you around things that aren't. My four-year-old daughter has gotten into this phase of really liking her name and identifying with it with our family. 
And so I'll say like, hey, kiddo. She's like, I am not kiddo. And I'm like, sure you are. She's like, no, I am Eleanor Jean Ridenauer. And she'll fr- say it and phrase it. And, you know, uh, and then if anybody calls her anything else, she'll say the same thing. Because that's how she identifies. And it's my job as her father to say, yeah, sh- sure you are. But also, you're identified not by my last name, by what Jesus did, though, you know? It changes how you see you. And it changes how you see those around you. Because that's what family does. He came into this moment and, and Jesus exploded their definition of family and he made something that was limited, unlimited. He made something that limited love, unlimited love. He made something that was exclusive, exhaustive for everybody, approachable for everybody. He made something that was divi- divisive around a deep, deep affection for what we strive towards together. He redefines family around those who know God in a culture that uses family for division. Because how you see family changes how you see you and those around you. And so Jesus says, who are my family? Look at these people that believe in a God who's reorganizing uh, and who's restoring and who's redeeming the world. These are the people I call my family. It doesn't mean that we don't love our families well that might or might not be Christ followers. It's not a call to not love. It's called love all the more. And to remind him that his next sentence is, whoever believes this is included. It's a beautiful reminder of what family is and informs how I see me, I bring nothing, and how I see others, that I'm no better than and we all need the same amount of Jesus at the end of the day. I love what Mother Teresa said. The problem with humanity is that we draw the circle of family too small. So I asked at the beginning, I'll ask at the end. Man, picture your family. Because in this context, you had a bunch of people in this tent, and most of them that followed Jesus left things to do so. Family was critically important. If you didn't have it, you didn't have a lot in life. You might have died in the first century, depending upon what age and stage you were. And so it's a call of hope and compassion of people that were without. So how does this text apply to us in so many different ways? I think it causes us, one, to see ourselves through the lens of what Jesus has done for us, not who we are because of what we were born into or what jobs we have or what class of group we're in or how much money we make or who we voted for. We see ourselves through only the lens of Jesus. And then that broadens out and says, if you are a Christ follower, you are my brother and my sister. One podcast I listened to about this recently said, and I love this line, I'm still chewing on it, so you can do the same thing. It's my gift to you. They said, if our identity in the first century world with family is all about who we are and who we were and the hope of where we're going together, then he said, think about this. You have more in common, you have more in common with a Jesus follower that's a Democrat than a non-Jesus follower that might share your same party affiliation. It's the South, I assumed you're Republicans, people, okay? (laughs) But he said, think about that. You have more in common with a Jesus follower in a different political party or different socioeconomic lines or different fill-in-the-blank there than a non-Jesus follower that might live next door to you. Because the lens through which we see each other and others is what Jesus did for us in the past, how that's shaping who I am today, and it is my hope for the future. Think about the next time we talk about people. It changes how we see ourselves and how we fundamentally see others. It's a call not to limit love, but to make love more unlimited for those people who maybe we thought were unlovable in the first place. So when we talk about family, it's this beautiful call to be kind to people that maybe we wouldn't, to include people that don't have and, and need but it's also a way that we talk to one another about what's valuable and what matters. It's comforting to me because I'm going to tell my daughter, you, you are defined by Jesus, not by my last name. Because I will fail you. Probably one time when you're 37, but I will <laughs> fail you. And when I do know that you are Jesus's and your identity is found in him, not by my goodness as a mom or dad. 
I'm a friend of mine who started a fund for their kid when her kid was born. And she's going to give money to it every year until she's 18. And then she's going to pull her kid aside and say, I did the best I could, but I know I broke you in some ways. Go pay somebody to fix it, you know? <laughs> and while I think that's an awesome idea, I think I'm going to pull my kid aside and say, I did the best I could, but your identity's in Jesus, not in me anyway, in my goods and in my bads. Because how we define family changes how we see us and how we see those around us. And what Jesus does in this passage is remind us that how we see us is through the lens of what he does for us. And, and then finally, I think what this does for us corporately is it reminds us that our family is way bigger than we give credit for. That we're supposed to fight for the flourishing of one another in this room, no matter how different they are, because what we have in common is better than our differences. And that is our ability, our determination, our desire to follow Jesus. It changes how we treat one another. And in a world that is just more antagonistic, uh, it's important to be reminded of what we're fighting for, not who we're fighting against. And so what Jesus does in this moment, uh, when they ask a simple question like, hey man, your mom's outside. He said, now we've got to talk about what that means. Because it's way bigger than what you think. It changes how you see you and those around you. You don't even realize it. Because our family, whether we realize it or not, shapes how we see ourselves and how we see others. And Jesus says, see that through the lens of me. And so we end today in communion. I think it's really important and communion because we have family rhythms. My family has family rhythms and a buddy of mine's family every Friday has pizza and movie night. And, uh, and so I think what we do as a family of God is remind one another that we come to the doorstep of this faith family through the sacrifice of Christ. I was reminded this week that there have been a lot of atrocities committed around the idea of bloodlines, you know? whether you're in the right bloodline or not, whether you're in the right country or not, whether you're the right you know, look or shape or not. And, and what Jesus does is he defines that and takes that idea and says, you, you know what? When we take communion together as a faith family, it reminds us that we all have the same blood running through our veins, and that's the sacrificial blood of Christ for our good. It's a thing we do to celebrate being a family together. It's our rhythm when we come together and say, this is what unites us. This is what unites us. Nothing else. This is the lens in which I see myself as I take communion. And then I look around and realize, man, Christ's death and resurrection, his blood shed for me, his body broken for me, wasn't just for me. It was for all these people too. And if Jesus loved these people like that, maybe I should as well. It changes how we see ourselves and how we see those around us. That's what family does. So I'm gonna pray and then I'll invite you to come and to any table you want to whenever you feel led. And as you take communion, you're reminded that your family is bigger than probably what you pictured at the beginning of this. Be reminded that your family is about loving those who Jesus loves. And be reminded that fundamentally our family is how we see ourselves and others, and it's only through the lens of Jesus in a culture that fights for your identity. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful that to use some of the words of Scripture, you've adopted us into your family. Holy Spirit, I, I just pray that's comforting for us. No matter what baggage we bring in from our own family, whether it's good or bad, I, I pray that's comforting for us to know that we're not defined by that, but we're defined by what Jesus did. And it's not just a comfortness, but it's a call to action as well, that now we're charged to love those people that are in the same house following Jesus together, saying, these are your family too, take care of them. Love them, be with them, sacrifice for them as I sacrificed for you. So as we take communion, might it be a comfort and a call on us to live into and live out the family of God like Jesus charged us to do, that it changes how we see us and those around us. Praise the name of Jesus, amen. Come to the table, it's ready.